There is a really curious detail in this gospel reading. And it's the the detail that mentions that Simon, Simon Peter, in other words, that Peter, has a mother-in-law who is healed. And then, as now, you only get a mother-in-law if you have a spouse. So what was it like to be married to Peter? It's a lovely distraction. It hardly justifies a sermon on the topic, but I'm certainly tempted because it so rarely gets addressed by theologians, preachers, and especially Roman Catholics. The dominant themes, though, in this gospel reading are undoubtedly healing and deliverance from demons. Healing is such a fascinating topic and a difficult topic. And on the surface, our reaction to this reading might be that this is something we know so little about. But there is one detail that just leaps off the page, and it's something we know a lot about. And it's the fact that the healing, this particular healing of Jesus, of Peter's mother-in-law, occurs when he goes into her presence and he takes her by the hand. It's an image of Jesus touching her, reaching out to her. And one of the things that scholars so often point out about healings in the Gospels is that one of the things that healings do is they restore the sick person. They restore the sick person to community. They bring that person back into the public light, restoring relationships. And that is compelling. We know that then as now, sometimes a sick person is um, not only distressed in body, but alienated and alone and often forgotten. I can't think about deep things like healing without thinking about particular people and stories to give some color and light to it. This story about healing this week, I couldn't get one person out of my mind, and it was not Jesus. It was a woman named Kathleen DeMars. Where's Kathleen? She was our crucifer this morning. There's Kathleen. And she is, if you're a kid and if you've gone to Cathedral Ridge like me, I don't know if I'm a kid still anymore, but you know that she's our camp nurse. But most importantly, if you've been in Kathleen's presence for a significant amount of time, she has just this presence. She's also a hugger. So she's, she has that Jesus touch thing going on. She has a, a, a spirit of joy. And she somehow always calls our attention, especially as a vestry, and I'm certain in other groups, to what matters the most. We were in a, a vestry meeting in June. It was before I started work, but somehow I'd started work because I was at a vestry meeting. And we had talked about all manner of things and budgets and plans and all these things. And at the end of the meeting, it was a total non sequitur. Kathleen said, hey, school starts tomorrow. Public schools start tomorrow. It was August. August. Sorry. I had started work. I exaggerated. It was August, and she said, school starts tomorrow. Richard, do your children start at East High School tomorrow? I said, actually, they do. She said, this is a big deal. We need to pray about this. 
God bless your kids. I hope they do well. And they have. She has that sense of what matters, and she always calls us back to relationships and human touch and what's on our hearts. I think she has a spirit of healing and that gift. The bit about demons is perhaps more interesting and certainly more difficult in terms of subject matter. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, healing, deliverance from dealing demons happens regularly. This is a constant theme. John's a different story, and I'll talk about him in a moment. Partly what scholars tell us on this deliverance from demons is that what's going on is that in Jesus' day for Jews, and especially for Jesus, there was a worldview which was constantly trying to put spiritual powers in its rightful place. And it was this vertical view of power and control. And at the bottom of the continuum, at the bottom of the heap was animals. And then right above that were people. And right above that were demons. And right above that were angels. And right above that were other divine powers. And at the very top, of course, was God. And so partly what these demon possession stories are trying to convey is that in that vertical continuum, Jesus is somewhere near the top. No one is more powerful or more controlling. Who has a demon? Now that's the really good question. And that's where John is so different. In John's gospel, Jesus never once delivers someone from a demon, but he himself is accused of having one. Which reminds me of that saying that I was taught as a kid, it takes one to know one. In John, this seems to be his subtle way of warning us to be reticent about naming demons or accusing someone of having one. In today's world, we generally look for horizontal causes rather than vertical or spiritual causes. We tend to explain destructive or unusual behavior by way of, of, a, of a psychological or a biological explanation. Nevertheless, we do know a thing or two about dramatic transformations like this, especially when we listen to our friends from the recovery community who talk so specifically about hitting rock bottom and realizing that drugs or alcohol are a disease over which they are powerless. And they're therefore dependent upon the touch and wisdom of human community and above all a higher power to deliver them in ways that are dramatic and extraordinary. So this image of Jesus as a deliverer from demons is not so odd or otherworldly as we might suppose at first glance. Even though I would be the first person to admit that there is as much we don't understand about this image of Jesus as there is that we do. When it comes to any one image of Christ or the Spirit, we need to be careful, very careful, not to be so charmed by any one image that we lose sight of other images, especially ones that provide some kind of contrast 
and variation. So I want to highlight a very different image of Christ and a very different scenario. Where is God when the healing does not come? Where is Christ when the demon is not banished, but instead seems to make itself at home with us? In other words, how do we imagine God's presence when our life just stays the same, rather than changing courses dramatically? And dynamic is this one. With lots of things to do and committees and people, you never knew who was in the building. Um, we also had the parish schools. So there was daily chapel for over 500 co-ed kiddos, pre-K through 8th grade. And one day I had just done school chapel for those kiddos. And I was vested literally just like this in a cassock and surplus. We'd finish the service, turn the lights off. And I was walking out of the side of the nave. And I stopped by the receptionist's desk to say hello. And as I walked into her office, I saw a gentleman who was possibly homeless, certainly disheveled. And the receptionist looked at me and said, this man's here to see a priest. And it was fairly obvious that I was one. <laughs> so we, we walked out into a foyer where it could just be the two of us, but it was not the two of us because those 500 kids were literally leaving and passing us all at once. Once they were gone... He could tell, we hadn't said anything, he could tell by my eyes and posture two things. That I was kind, but busy. And in fact, I think he was right. I know on the latter, I'm certain he was. Because I was headed to get unvested to go to a different meeting. It's one of those parishes where you have to really watch your watch and calendar. So he looked at me in the eyes and said, listen, I don't need anything from you. I'm not here to ask for anything, but I want to tell you a few things. So we walked in the nave. Lights were already off, but it was, a, it was already um, about 8.45 a.m. And it was a beautiful day and the sun was rising. And so in the midst of the shadows in that nave, like here at the right time, the color from the stained glass windows was just folding into the shadows. And we sat down in a pew, and he started before I could say anything, and he started talking about what it's like to be on the streets and what it's like to get a shelter for a night or two and then miss it the next night or two and to have this constant life of survival. He didn't say that the way I just said it. He said it by telling me two or three stories, one right after the other, and it was obvious he was a born storyteller with a feel for colorful details and a great feel for how complex all people are, including himself. And he shifted from talking about how hard and complex it is to live the life he does he said, I just have this sense that God is with me. And I'm really grateful for that. And he launched into another story. And the image he basically described was this image of God kind of following him. 
And he concluded by saying, I just have this sense that I'm not alone. And he said, am I crazy? By that point, we had developed a little bit of a rapport. So I knew I was safe to say, well, I don't know you enough, well enough to know if you're crazy or not. But what you're saying about God makes a great deal of sense to me. I sometimes wonder if Christ or the Spirit is like this gentleman. If Christ or the Spirit is sometimes just with us and not asking for anything, a bus ticket or anything like that, just simply with us and telling a story or two, a kind of presence that's so mysterious, no grand healing, no deliverance from a demon, very little change, but a deep awareness of companionship. And that's why the scriptures so regularly imagine the spirit as our breath. With us each breath and step of our journey. And that's why sometimes I like to imagine Christ not only as our guide or as the one who's up ahead of us, but I imagine Christ also is behind us, is the one who follows us so that every now and then we can turn around and look back and get not a better sense of direction, but a deeper sense that we are not alone no matter where we go or end up.